the Athletes in the Arts podcast, hosted by Stephen Karaginas and Yasi Ansari. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Athletes in the Arts podcast. Along with Yasi Ansari, I'm Stephen Karaginas. And for today's podcast, we wanted to talk about vocal disorders and performers. So joining us on our show today is the president of the Performing Arts Medical Association and noted otolaryngologist, Dr. Lucinda Halstead. Dr. Halstead, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's wonderful to be here, Steve. Thank you for inviting me. So first off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into medicine? Well, um, I was always very interested, actually, in the arts. But as I went through college, my um, focus changed a little bit from being trying to be a performer in the arts, a singer, a dancer, uh, to thinking more about um, what I could do to help people. And so in that pursuit, I was encouraged to apply to medical school. And so way back in the late 70s, that was a pretty unusual thing. Um, I applied and was accepted, and I was one of 10 female uh, medical students in my class, mm-hmm. um, which was uh, which was wonderful. It was uh, very different. The milieu and the culture was very different then. Um, but uh, I did get great mentorship from uh, all of the, the professors there, uh, which were actually all male. And um, uh, then I began to develop uh, an interest in surgery. And I was had a great mentor who said, you know, you should look at laryngology. And it was great because I like to solve puzzles. And the nice thing about my specialty, which is laryngology, where I deal with voice and swallowing, it's always a puzzle because people come in with a complaint. They don't come in with an x-ray saying, this is what's wrong with me. They come in with a complaint and then you have to build on it. So I became interested in otolaryngology and was then Uh, accepted at uh, the uh, New England Medical Center Hospital in their general surgery internship and then into their um, otolaryngology program. I was the fourth female to be accepted into their general surgery internship at New England Medical Center. Fourth ever? Fourth ever. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And the other three were right ahead of me, so we were all there. Um, and Amazing. then um, similarly, I was the f- uh, fifth female to be accepted into the otolaryngology program at New England Medical Center. And um, then when I graduated, uh, I was able to secure a position here in Charleston at the Medical University of South Carolina. And um, I was the third female surgeon in the hospital. We had a one cardiothoracic surgeon and one orthopedic surgeon uh, on faculty. So we became a very tightly knit group. Um, and I'm so delighted to say that uh, the field of medicine has opened up both in the medical and surgical aspects. And now in our residency, not quite, but almost half of our residents are female for otolaryngology. That's wonderful. I, th- I mean, so you, you, you're pretty much a, a pioneer back then because, I mean, the idea of like, women surgeons was probably scoffed at behind your backs. And yeah. 
So what made you, what did you, were you like scared to even apply? Did you like, who, who helped you push yourself through that process to become an ENT? Um, well, one of the general surgeons and I were talking and he was actually, uh, spent a lot of time giving me some, uh, uh, tough jokes about my name because, you know, (laughs) Halstead is, uh, very surgical, famous surgical name, you know, William Halstead. Oh, right. And yeah, so uh, what I usually put, they say, well, are you related to <laughs> Dr. William Halstead? And I go, oh, you mean my great uncle Willie? And I, but he's not. He really, I am not directly related to this man. Right. But um, we do all both have relatives in the same general area of North Carolina, uh, but I am not a, a direct descendant of him. But anyway, it was, it's always been kind of a big question or used to be a big question. And um, so he would be kind of teasing me about that. And so then we got to know each other and I was talking to him about my interests in surgery because after doing my medicine rotation, I, when we went into surgery, you know, it was one of those aha moments, mm-hmm. you know, this is what I want to do. And then I was kind of going, he goes, he goes oh, you don't want to do what I do, he goes, you know, you should really look at ENT because you like to solve problems. And you can do it both in ENT because people come to you with more of a complaint versus just an X-ray or a pathologic diagnosis. And so then he set me up with um, uh, a mentorship. And so I went and spent some time with an otolaryngologist and I said, yeah, this is, this is what I wanna do. But then in residency, I was very, very, very fortunate to have um, Charles Vaughn and M. Stuart Strong as uh, uh, professors and mentors because both of them pioneered uh, phonosurgery. So all of the things that we do now for Mm -hmm. singers. And also they were the uh, otolaryngologists for the Boston Opera. And um, yes, ah. and um, they'd had people of uh, singers and performers of all genres coming in to see them. So, and that was that was it for me. That was really it for me. And that was and, your spark to do performing arts, then, huh? Yes, to to continue to um, to work and try to include in my practice performing artists. And it was, you know, their encouragement that really, really helped that. Um, And because I, you know, I grew up dancing and singing and, you know, didn't really want to, uh, you know, find a good way to integrate my love of that with something uh, that I, my profession. So it's been great. What style of singing were you most into? Oh, musical theater, of course. (laughs) Song and dance. Yeah, song and dance. Um, You know, I did get a kind of a classical training, Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that was where, you know, and I had classical ballet training as well. uh, But, you know, when you grow up in L.A., that's kind of where everybody wants to be. So... I was going to ask, like, how long were you dancing for? And I think it's amazing that you've been able to combine your love for dance and performing with medicine. So, you know, I um, actually uh, took dance classes all the way through high school and intermittently through college. And believe it or not, I learned how to tap dance in my first year of medical school. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that there was taking the stress off the exams. That was like your 
outlet, right? Yeah. One of the other 10 females was in this group <laughs> with me because we there was this guy, this this teacher who taught dance and he taught tap dancing at seven o'clock in the morning. Great. So there okay. we were. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I have continued intermittently to take voice lessons as well. But mm -hmm. as Steve, you can attest that as a surgeon, you really need to have a lot of core strength and a lot of physical strength. So um, besides working out now um, over Zoom class and now in-person classes, um, I do take some dance classes now, both ballet and ballroom. And uh, my husband and I take ballroom dance classes together. Aww. So yeah, it's and it's it's a lot of fun. So. Well, I think you made it very clear then for, to help with the mental health of residents and medical students in the future, we need to integrate tap and singing lessons into the curriculum at med school. That's right. Absolutely. We need to do that. Yes. You know, it's, but we have, you know, we do have, uh, at least in our medical school, we do have student medical student choruses. And yeah, so they're, they're, they're pretty active. They haven't been active this year, but um, it's a great outlet. And mm -hmm. uh, I think, Encourage, I try to encourage uh, my residents um, who have these um, interests in recording, uh, in performing, uh, to can do as much as you can when you're a resident. So um, it's, but a lot of them, we have one resident who's a musician. He plays, he does a little bit of singing, but he mostly plays uh, guitar and he plays um, the trumpet and um, has done some composing. And so he's always going out to art events and, you know, he practices on the side. And um, so it's, it's exciting to have these residents who are passionate about the arts and to be able to work with them as well and kind of push them toward the performing arts medicine uh, ideas, um, as well as just treating the professional voice, which is of course what laryngologists do, so. Right. I think dance and music are so healing, especially during, you know, this COVID chapter of our lives. Um, I think that that's been something that's helped people just get away from the real world and, and de-stress and, and come back stronger and just more energized. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what vocal dystonia is and how does sure. it So vocal dystonia um, is like the dystonia that musicians have in their, um, in their hands or in their arms. Uh, it's a focal muscular dystonia that happens to affect the larynx. And it can be very difficult to actually diagnose because you still have to determine whether it's a technique issue or it's a dystonia, or is it compensatory behavior because they actually have an underlying neurological partial paralysis of the larynx? So a focal weakness in the muscle causing them to overcompensate. So uh, focal dystonia uh, is a musician's dystonia. Um, it We don't have as clear I think path as Eckhart Altenmuller has started, has recently published of how you can tell how different instrumental musicians develop their focal dystonia and going all the way back into their childhood. 
Um, it hasn't really been studied that way. Um, but most of my singers will say that um, it just started happening. So they thought it was a technique issue. And um, about 50% of the people who end up with this uh, singing voice dystonia will end up with um, a speaking voice dystonia as well called spasmodic dysphonia. Um, so the things that we do with patients that have singers who have this, what we think is task-specific singing dystonia, which can be either uh, pitch-specific or task-specific. So it could be uh, for people with the abductor type of uh, vocal dystonia, where voiced consonants are a problem, they will break on those, uh, excuse me, voiceless consonants are a problem. They will break on those like, you know, the ka, pa, ta, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so one of our uh, singers came to us and he was had the abductor, this breathy dystonia on uh, voiceless consonants. And the show that he was in, his signature song was rock around the clock. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah. So um, we worked with him and, uh, you know, the first thing you need to do with, it, the, with all of these patients is to make sure there's no other contributing underlying medical cause, whether it's reflux or allergies, um, yeah. anything like that. Then you need to do a laryngeal EMG. So, you know, we do examine the muscles with needle electrodes. Mm -hmm. um, to make sure that it's not that they have a weakness that they're overcompensating for. And then the next thing that you have to do is to work, I work with my singing voice specialist to then analyze what they're doing in a song to make sure that this is not a technique issue. And the first paper, the paper that we wrote, uh, and cited a um, the only other uh, paper that's really been written on this subject. Um, singers have actually taken voice lessons for like 10 years trying to correct this problem before mm -hmm. they sought help. And we were very lucky because most of the people in South Carolina, it's a small community, so they would re be referred to us much sooner. But you need to find whether or not this is just a register transition issue. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I rely on my singing voice specialist to be able to work with them in various ways to see if they can get through their register transition to make sure that that's not the problem. Are there common triggers that you notice that vocalists can keep an eye out for? Or I know you said that there are not enough studies to really determine that, but are there like specific things that you find really common in your vocalists? So yeah, they will come to you and tell you they have this place in their voice. Usually it's a couple of note range where um, they, if, when they go through that place, no matter how they go through it, and it's usually not in their register transition, mm -hmm. that they become unstable. And you can see it when you're uh, recording their larynx, doing a stroboscopic exam, you can hear it and, you know, uh, They'll just tell you, they go, going through that place is like an agony. And they're just trying to figure ways to get through it without breaking. 
um, which of course with that anxiety com- you know, compounds mm-hmm. the problem. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, very interesting uh, diagnosis and um, it's, it's hard to make. And uh, when you make it up until now where I see a real future coming, uh, with some of the brand new things that are coming down the pike for treatment of vocal dystonia, spasmodic dysphonia uh, in the speaking voice, I think will be wonderful for um, our our singers. So in uh, our singers, in our treatment of spasmodic dysphonia, focal dystonia of the larynx for the speaking voice, we have a few medications that can be used. Um, the ones that we use most frequently are clonazepam and primidone. And primidone is actually very interesting because the neurologists use it a lot for hand and head, head tremor. And for those people uh, who can tolerate the medicine and don't have side effects from it, um, I have had some people have stunning vocal results in their speaking voice and you know, um, also in their singing voice. Um, then of course we have laryngeal Botox. And that is a problem for singers because the more you weaken these muscles, the less control they have. Right. And um, so it's, it's very hard to find an optimum dose of the Botox that eliminates or helps them overcome the dystonia, but still allows them enough control to, to sing. To, right. to sing, yeah. And- Are there any surgical treatments that are sometimes needed? So um, right now, um, there's there's no like uh, really good surgical treatment. Uh, The most promising surgical treatment we have is the selective denervation reinnervation procedure, Mm -hmm. Um, and um, it it is a brilliantly conceived surgery. It's fairly effective, you know, about maybe 50 to 60% of people get a lot better with it. Mm -hmm. Um, The hesitancy I've always had with that, even though it is a brilliant procedure, is that way back in the day, in the 80s and 90s, people used to do recurrent laryngeal nerve sections. um, And you burn a bridge that way. And I'm delighted to say that um, now there are things coming down the pike that I think... um, will obviate the need for that kind of surgery. And um, so, and this is also based on things that the voice community has learned from the musicians, where they started using the vibrotactile sleeve Mm -hmm. in PNS. So now they're designing vibrotactile collars for singers. So, you know, you you could conceivably have a performer wearing something like that. The other thing that we're doing now for spasmodic dysphonia, or it's in the process of being completely um, delineated, how, you know, how long you should do this and how many times a day is non-invasive DBS. So they're using non-invasive DBS for people with um, depression and with a seizure disorder instead of the vagal nerve stimulator. that um, And now they are looking at that in laryngeal dystonia. And those kinds of things, I think, would be so liberating for our performers because it doesn't, it doesn't disrupt their neural mechanisms. All of their nerves and muscles will be intact. 
but it does alter the signal from the brain, which is where we think most of this dystonia is originating. Right. And D so, DBS is deep brain stimulation, right? Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Exactly. Right. So, so, so it seems to be a deep brain aspect of it, but also an acquired aspect as well, right? Sometimes singers try to overreach their abilities sometimes and then where they rehearse too much or what? So there... how does it, yeah, for singers, it's, it's really kind of hard. So I think a lot of it is overreaching their, um, their abilities. Mm -hmm. Um, but some of it can just be that they have this genetic predisposition to dystonia because oh, wow. some of them, you know, just like in musicians, there is this, most musicians seem to have this, there's a large population of them that have this genetic predisposition. You can't, like with my, my patients who are uh, saxophonists, mm -hmm. uh, who come to me with embouchure dystonia, they are completely overdriven and overpracticed. Um, and and it's, it's a really clear sign. For us, see, here's where we need the athletes and the arts. Mm -hmm. We don't have the mechanism to say how much practice is too much right. in a vocalist. And, you know, I do know, just because I know, um, you know, I treat a lot of singers, that unlike athletes who know how to train really hard and then right before the big event they pace themselves they get good nutrition they get rest these guys you know just burn it out uh right before the performance and so there's those not enough information there's not enough information to be like hey at this point i need you to stop and rest and hydrate or eat certain foods that are going to support your vocal cords there's not enough there's right? this yeah there's really hardly any Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the wonderful thing with, you know, like um, um, uh, the, I'm blanking on the name of it now. Well, just athletes in the arts does a lot of. Well, yeah. Um, it's, it's not, it's, it's drum corps. That's the name I was kind of looking for. That's the wonderful thing about drum corps is that, you know, they know Jeff Russell, who is one of our members who travels with drum corps. Um, knows exactly how much, how many calories they need, how much rest they need, how much hydration they need to get through all of these big competitions, um, just like ice skaters do, just like um, football players do. Um, but we don't know how many calories you need to be in a chorus of the Messiah. We don't know how many calories you need to be able to, you know, sing a Broadway musical that's a non-dancing, you know, essentially non-dancing musical and heaven help you when you're doing both. So um, we just, we don't have that information, but we do know that the whole practice and nutrition and preparing for performance for these people is completely uh, counterintuitive when you think of how uh, athletes train to do high level competition. It seems to be a problem in performing arts in general. We talk about this all the time with dance, like performances, having like full out dress rehearsals for four to five days before the actual performances. It seems like with the taper period, if like a marathon trainer, uh, or a marathon runner training, uh, you know, they'll taper before the performance and football players have, like you said, have walkthroughs before their big game. And, mm -hmm. and yet in the perform performing arts world, it seems like you have to work even harder 
up until that moment of performance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you're just trying to get through, through the performance. And almost right. like instead of being there and present in your performance, you're like, I just got to get through this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. So it almost no seems one, like that's tied to the this Tony you're talking about. Right. And there's no one that's like there when you're at dress rehearsal to be like, hey, guys, let's make sure we're eating really well right now for the next three days that we are in. 12 hour dance rehearsals and we're going to go back to back and we're going to perform to the best that we can. And we're going to pretend it's the show. Right. So I think it's really important to keep spreading information. So like I said, that's, that's why I think athletes in the arts has such potential for performing artists to Mm. help them be at peak performance, but you know, and trying to get that integrated into the training programs. And that's, that's the real, you know, trying to redefine and rethink that culture of performance for musicians and, and singers and dancers. Um, and it's going to be very difficult. How do you think is the best way, to, what's the best way to, let's rephrase that. What do you think the best way is to get buy-in from the performing arts world uh, on these new concepts that most folks would probably be terrified. Like I'm sure the first time you suggest to a choreographer to rest your dancers before a performance, they're going to freak out and say, forget you. So how do you, how do we think we can achieve that buy-in? I think that it almost has to be something that's brought in. Um, you have to have the buy-in um, at the college level and maybe even in the high school level. Um, and you know, it's it's a very hard buy-in because you know this is this is the way we do it. This is the way it's always been done. Um, I always uh, find it very amazing that uh, sometimes um, faculty members at different colleges have asked me to come and speak to their singers, and the response from the rest of the faculty is, "We don't have time for them to learn about their voice. We don't have time <laughs> for you to give this lecture." Um, wow. You know, and um, but then when people start getting injured, then they start, uh, you know, paying a little more attention. But I think that it has to be um, in some ways uh, that there's studies that show or, you know, have people who are training and then winning competitions or choruses that are, you know, that you train um, and then they say, well, you know, we tried this instead and now we are winning all of these particular awards or these particular competitions. That's probably one of the ways that people will begin to look at that. Um, I, I don't see um, an easy way to do it. Right. Um, I think trying to convince uh, heads of departments that these are things that they should try for the health and well-being of their students. And who knows, maybe with the, with the pandemic, people will kind of take a look back and say, look, we had to do everything different for the pandemic. So why don't we start looking at this as well? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think that those are, are really important things. What are some of the risks with vocalists and in COVID now that we're talking a little bit more about everything that's happened with the pandemic? So it's been very interesting. Um, uh, The biggest thing that happened, and I think that happened with all of the performing artists, 
regardless, mm-hmm. is deconditioning. Right. Okay. And so now um, after not practicing and some of them have not practiced for months, as they try to get back into it, they realize that their vocal mechanism is not is not what it should be. And then they overstress it and then they end up with inflammatory lesions of the vocal folds like nodules or polyps. Um, so we see a lot of that. We see a lot of deconditioning in the breath, um, which is something that I think is very, very important. And um, getting them to realize that they need to you know, strengthen their breathing mechanism and then also rebuild their, their vocal technique. So that's one thing that we've seen, uh, probably the most common thing uh, for people who've actually had COVID, in, uh, and some of these people have had COVID, but not all of them. But for the people in particular who have had COVID, we also see um, a moderate number of people who have weakness of one of the nerves of the larynx so or even complete paralysis uh wow yeah so i had one young singer who had covid and developed adenopathy that ended up pressing on her recurrent laryngeal nerve so for a couple of months she actually had complete unilateral paralysis but Mm -hmm. then as that uh, uh lymph node resolved she recovered her voice um so we have that's another big group and then we have the people who have been severely uh affected by covid who've been intubated and then we have to deal with their intubation injuries and their pulmonary problems so um you know we've had singers who've been uh one singer um that i'm treating currently was in the icu intubated for two weeks in the prone position. Mm -hmm. And so we're, you know, she has pulmonary issues and she definitely has, you know, lesions on her vocal folds that need to be addressed. So um, these are the kinds of things that we're seeing. We, they were so afraid to come in. It's now like the floodgate is open. We're seeing lots and lots and lots of people come in, but um, those are the kinds of injuries that we're seeing. Um, Those are some of the challenges that you've been seeing. And I can't imagine how hard that must be for them because they want to come back to this sport, right? And they didn't really have control over what happened to them this past year. So the work that you're doing is so empowering and, and hard. And also, I my heart goes to them during this time. Well, you know, all of you deal with performers too. And, you know, and athletes are the same way, you know. Mm-hmm. When they lose this, they lose their soul. And you have to be so aware of that, that these people are totally devastated because they have lost what defines them. So their identity. It's their identity. Right. You know, their ability to sing, their ability to reach out emotionally and vocally and move people, um, and it's gone that magic connection to the world is gone. And whether it's because, you know, they're a dancer doing the Mm -hmm. same thing or Mm -hmm. a musician with his instrument or her instrument. um, These are, some people go, oh, well, you know, they just, they just play and you don't, it's, it's not that way. That's, it's not that way. It's the way people are. These, this is 
core to their being. And um, it's it's so hard. So, so many tears, so many is tears. There, is there more information out there about this, like the specifics of some of the challenges people who've been diagnosed with COVID face? Um, like the vocalists, I mean, and the reason I ask this is because I think it'd be really important to share more of this information because if I was a professional vocalist, I might not feel comfortable reaching out to help yet because mm -hmm. I, I don't know, I might not feel comfortable yet, you know, to, to reach out to help and then, um, and potentially have to hear from a, a physician that it's going to take a long time for me to recover and to get back to my, I call this a sport still, you know, and, and I just want to know, like, what advice do you give to people who have been affected and how do you connect with them more on a deeper level to give them hope to come back and to not be afraid to reach out for help? Because I think it would be really beneficial for them to do so. So we've been trying through webinars um, and, you know, I do, my hat is off to the National Association of Teachers of Singing who are tirelessly, you know, reaching out to their members mm -hmm. about, you know, trying to stay fit, trying to be restful, reach out when you have a problem. Mm -hmm. But the fear, the fear of coming into the office because, you know, singing is an aerosol generating activity. And um, being in that environment pre-vaccination, we had a hard time getting people in. Mm -hmm. um, they were scared to come in. Mm -hmm. um, and um, then when they come in, of course, you know, we were in full PPE, which is not a really good way to, you know, engender rapport with your patient when you have an N95 and a face shield and you're in all of these isolation gowns. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I said, you know, hi, I'm Dr. Halstead and I, yes, I'm dressed up like a baggie. And <laughs> that's, you know, to try to break the ice. Cause you know, they, mm -hmm. cause mm -hmm. then you start putting things on them too. So right. it, it becomes, you know, they have to have a mask, they have to have some sort of shield. Um, and, and then we kind of try to, you know, do the exam through all of these different uh, layers of protection right. and now listen to them sing or talk yeah. just I imagine that's like another layer of a challenge to be able to really understand what's going on all the time yeah and so um fortunately now um things are better you know mm -hmm. we're able to relax and just use n95 masks and some face shields in addition and you know get people to be able to sing and perform and feel more comfortable uh, in that environment, you know, it's more like it doesn't feel like, you know, you're walking into the ED with everybody all gowned up. This is more like a, a real doctor's visit, mm -hmm. you know, where you can really relate to your healthcare professional. So um, we're starting to see tons of singers uh, that were uh, really reluctant to come before. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned before about the aerosolization of of droplets from singers and performers and with the performing arts medical association you guys were involved and in working with groups that were doing aerosol research with covid um so what were the results of that so the results of that showed um the coalition the, the we call the unprecedented coalition uh of international coalition for the study of aerosols um uh james weaver and mark speed were the um 
heads of the organization and Julianna Shebrick, Sebrick and Shelley Miller were the PIs for this study. So part of it was done in Maryland and part of it was done at the University of uh, Colorado at Boulder. And they looked specifically at uh, what comes out of an instrument when you're playing it and who's got the most aerosol coming out of it. Mm -hmm. They looked at singers, they looked at actors. Um, they were going to look at children, but I don't think that part of the study has yet been published. And I don't know how far they got into that. But the big thing was, what can we do to keep orchestras playing safely? What can we do with singers and actors? And what kind of aerosol do they generate? And then, so they studied these particular, all like wind and brass instruments um, and looked at how much aerosol was there. And actually the worst one is the oboe. And believe it or not, the least one is actually the flute. Because if you have a windscreen here, since it goes right angles, there's a lot less aerosol generated. Right. And, okay. um, and so then they started looking at, you know, how much came out of the bell, how much comes around the keys. And um, they found that even though there is some escape around the keys, most of the time you can just use a bell cover and there's specific uh, materials that they recommend for the bell cover. And for the instrumentalists, um, they, uh, Mark Speed, had devised a kind of two level or the whole aerosol uh, coalition, a two layer system for um, uh, wind instrumentalists and brass in instrumentalists. So you would have one of those um, three layer, you know, regular surgical masks that you just hook over your ears. Um, so it's not a high filtration mask and you'd have a little slit in it so you could stick your instrument in there. Mm. And when you weren't playing, you also had another mask hanging off your ear that was a full mask. So when you weren't playing, you put the other mask on top of your slit mask so that you weren't emitting aerosols while you were uh, just sitting there in, in the orchestra. And it is stunningly effective. Hmm. It is stunningly effective. Um, Mark Speed shared with us that um, he had several band rehearsals where it turns out that people were actively infected with COVID undiagnosed. They were diagnosed after the rehearsal um, that um, they played uh, in these rehearsals, which were limited, you know, to about a half an hour socially, you know, distance with the, mm -hmm. um, and nobody got it. There was no transmission, none. Amazing. Yeah. So with singers, when you look at the aerosols, um, just coming out of the mouth, it comes straight out. Mm -hmm. um, and then it kind of starts billowing, you know, up and down. With a mask, it all kind of is directed mostly up and maybe a little bit from leaking under the, sh the chin. So it kind of protects everybody else in the room because you don't have that aerosol going streaming directly across the room at them. Mm. Um, singing with a mask is tough. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, that's why I think we're seeing a high number of singers being vaccinated. And, um, I would say now I'm really surprised, delightfully surprised that 
about 50% of all the patients that come into my clinic every day are vaccinated. And sometimes it's as high as um, 90%. Um, I'm thrilled. Positive steps. I'm I'm thrilled. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so for singers, it's a little difficult. Um, Really, if you want to be able to sing in a group, I really feel that everybody needs to be vaccinated. And I think that they need to be kind and caring and respectful of their choir members by producing their vaccination card as evidence of how much they care for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I have several um, choirs, church choirs here in South Carolina who say we're all fully vaccinated, you know, because I can tell you they all have their cards. So can we sing, you know, can we sing for the congregation? And I'm going, yeah, you guys can sing without a mask in the, con- you know, the congregation. I said, but now you have to look at the ventilation. So there's two things with the aerosols. Right. It's the mitigation to keep it from spreading to other people. Um, and so for them, what we've always said is that you should make sure your your choir is spaced away from the congregation. So mm-hmm. if they're standing in front of the congregation, the first couple of rows, like three or four rows should be free of people. And then you can have the rest of your congregation masked and socially spaced in the back. Um, but, you know, also trying to get some ventilation across so that there's there's not this wall of aerosol coming from the congregation to these people and vice versa. Are you recommending things like fans, maybe? Do they have fans blowing some of the aerosol away from people? So, yeah, they're they're talking about, you know, I usually suggest to them, I said, look at your thing. Can you get some fans? Just get a little cross ventilation there. Mm-hmm. You know, can you open the windows? But again, it's just getting that cross ventilation. Right. And the lovely thing, I think, for the future is some of the wonderful modeling that was done on... Uh, buildings uh, on on ventilation within your rooms Mm -hmm. that I think as universities and people try to revamp their studios that they should take into consideration where the best way is to have your ventilation coming in from floor level and then being uh, evacuated from the ceiling. So everything goes immediately up and out of your way. Mm -hmm. And, um, And that's not the way most uh, most buildings are made. You know, the in, intake and outlet valves are all on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And so um, thinking about those kinds of things when you mm-hmm. have to, you know, if you're building a new building, doesn't it make sense to install something like this because it's even good for the flu? So, you know, you would... In a college dorm, for example, if they build a new college dorm, if they had this kind of system, the amount of infections they would have would be a lot lower. So um, it's it's a fascinating um, it's a fascinating area. I've learned so much from these wonderful researchers and and that team, and trying to I spend a lot of time talking to different schools and uh, churches. Um, about these, you know, how can we perform? Um, and now that more and more people are vaccinated, we'll be able to do more with um, performing in groups. So will there be similar modifications or interventions for places like Broadway theaters? For- 
so yeah, they are trying to figure out good ways to come in uh, and be together. Now, I don't know um, whether or not they're going to require all of their performers to be vaccinated. Um, so, um, and then you have to think about the guys in the pit. Right. So these are huge challenges that they're dealing mm -hmm. with. Um, and old and filter systems and those old theaters. I mean, those are probably haven't been updated in <laughs> decades, probably. Right. Right. And, and these are things I think in the future, it would be, um, I would think now that everybody's been shut down for so long that they would start kind of looking at that or at least figuring out how they can, uh, you know, install HEPA filters and, you know, uh, far UV light uh, to help uh, deal with some of this. So what else is PAMA involved with as far as upcoming projects and research? I'm sure PAMA's got a lot of things going on now. I mean so what we've been involved in, again, with our young professionals is having them put forward their research. We're trying to collaborate also uh, with all of our international and national other arts associations mm -hmm. to grow together as a, you know, a collegial family to share our resources and to share our knowledge because there's, there's so much to learn from each one of them. And so many, right now there's so many, you know, wonderful pieces of information that are sort of siloed in different organizations to be able to, you know, use our electronic platforms to, you know, come together and to share information. So that's one of the things that, you know, both nationally and internationally, that's one of the things that we're doing. Uh, PAMA, like I said, is growing very fast. Our young professionals, you know, are on fire with their research um, and their, um, their webinars. And um, then we've been growing with the essentials in performing arts medicine course. There's a big demand for us to do like, you know, essentials of performing arts 102. We have 101 and mm -hmm. you know, to, to provide some extra, people are hungry for that kind of thing. So these are things, these are projects that we're going to be working on um, as well. The essentials program is, uh, I think like PAMA back in 2016 was the first organization to actually have certification Correct. For, for, for doctors. And I think it's just doctors now, or is it also like trainers and therapists? So, um, there is a certificate, a certificate course, which just says that you, you know, that you've taken this test and you, you know, have mastered this material. It is not a complete certification like ACSM does for mm -hmm. their 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 trainers. But we are working toward that becoming uh, a reality. So it's not there yet, but we are working on it. And I believe you have a conference coming up too, right? Yes, we do. So in um, in uh, June, uh, June 24th through 27th, we have the Performing Arts Medicine Association course uh, symposium, which um, will be all virtual. We had hoped to have a small portion of it hosted at Wild Cornell um, our first day. And um, unfortunately, circumstances there have um, changed. So it's going to be entirely virtual. Uh, and, program. And off the top of your head, could you share some of the topics that are going to be highlighted during this virtual event just for the people who are listening? Because I think it'd be great to, to look into this and, and attend, hopefully. Oh, yeah. Um, so 
some of the um, the big the big topics will be um, Eckhart Al Altenmuller is going to be um, one of our keynotes, and the title of his talk is 30 Years of Dystonia: The Light at the End of the Tunnel." Okay. Um, James Nestor, who you may or may not be um, aware of, is an a, a reporter um, writer who um, has authored a best-selling book called Breathe, or Breath, actually, and um, talking about um, sort of how our, our facial structures developed and how we have problems with um, breathing and obstructive sleep apnea and, you know, malocclusion based on um, our diet, and then also talking about some of the mechanisms people have used throughout history um, to improve their breathing. And it's, it's a very interesting book, and he's going to be one of our keynote speakers. Um, and then we have um, Michelle Dorrance. I don't have the topic of her, um, of her uh speech, but she's going to be talking um, about dance and dance uh, injuries. Um, and um, we have uh, Michael Weiss, who's going to be talking about uh, working with Broadway performers. And we have um, uh, Ivory Aquino, who is also going to be speaking um, on a topic in dance. I don't have the that exact topic. Um, there's going to be a lot on uh, injury pre prevention, both mm -hmm. in music and dance. Mm -hmm. um, I'm proud to say that, you know, the, the vocal portion of, of our program is growing. Uh, my colleagues from the Collegium Medicorum Teatre are going to be talking about um, the effects of COVID on voice and theater. Mm -hmm. And the um, panelists for that presentation um, are in charge of uh, venues such as the Salzburg Festival and La Scala, to name a couple. Um, so they'll be kind of talking about how they had to manage these particular um, venues during the pandemic and um, the consequences not only for the singers, but also for everybody else who works uh, in that theater environment to mm -hmm. uh, support the, the, these musical endeavors. So those are some of the things that we've, we've got on, on board. Um, and from the, the dance point of view, uh, one thing that we historically do uh, at PAMA conventions in, in person is to have um, a yoga session every morning. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, anybody who wants to comes up at seven o'clock in the morning and they do, does yoga. Mm -hmm. And this year we have not only a yoga uh, professional, but we are going to have one of our members who is certified in Pilates doing Pilates. Um, one night, one day is going to be Pilates, Friday is going to be Pilates, and Saturday, um, one of um, uh, the teachers who is a certified instructor for the Zeno Romet floor bar technique um, for core and stabilization for dancers, which can be used with anybody with any kind of musculoskeletal problem, uh, will be doing a, a, a class. And so those are some of the interesting things that are, are going on. With one packed conference, I tell you, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. 
Seems so, like a resource for everybody. It seems like everyone could benefit from this. Yeah, it's 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 great for me. It's it's such a wonderful learning experience. I always mm -hmm. find going to conferences that are tangential or not even well tangential mostly to my specialty mm -hmm. um, are where I learn the most. Mm -hmm. um, taking things from uh, like the pulmonology conference. I went to a conference on cough and I was the only otolaryngologist there, which I thought was amazing. This was several years ago. Wow. Um, now cough has become a much bigger topic for laryngologists, but um, it was very interesting that, um, you know, I learned so much about the thing I think that's most important is I learned their point of view. And it's mm -hmm. just like when I go to a GI kind of conference, I, you start seeing that, you know, things from their point of view. So now you understand mm -hmm. where they're coming from and then they can kind of understand where we're coming from. Um, I you guess it's a the different perspective. It's like, a yeah, it's, it's a different perspective. You know, mm -hmm. it's the proverbial blind man and the elephant, right? You know, it's, and I learned so much that way. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's so exciting. And that's why I think, I keep harping back to this, but that's why I think athletes in the arts is such an exciting and vibrant and, and important aspect of performing arts medicine, regardless of what art you practice. No, it's got, it has the uh, ability to bring all those collaborations together. However, I mean, PAMA is doing that also as well. So I think the, ma the marriage of PAMA and athletes in the arts has been truly amazing so far in this first nine years of our existence so right we have you know we have thoroughly enjoyed having uh this collaboration and we expect it to continue and grow um i i think it is a perfect you know melding of interests and uh we all share the common endpoints and we can provide certain things to you and you provide it's a great dialogue um, some of the science that we have, we can show it to you and then you can turn it into something that can become a useful tool. Um, it's fantastic. Now, I want to ask just out of curiosity, because you have accomplished so much and, you know, now you're the, the president of PAMA and I just want to, to know for just a fun question. Um, mm -hmm. what do you love most about what you do and what's been the most I guess, if you had to choose the highlight of your career thus far? Um, I think the highlight of my career is, um, this sounds very trite, are my patients. Okay. Yeah. And helping them restore their voices mm -hmm. and achieve uh, their personal, you know, and artistic goals. Mm -hmm. Um and to, you know, be in people who are not performers, uh, helping them restore their health and teaching them how to, you know, I try to teach each of them and impart information that they can take with them so they can continue to improve. To me, that's, I think, one of the highlights of my career is to see somebody just, you know, send me a MyChart message and they just go, thank you so much, I'm all better and I know how to continue to take care of myself or thank you so much, I was able to accomplish, you know, do this performance. Um, so to me, those are the things, the personal things I think are, 
are really the most important. Don't get me wrong. I am thrilled to be the president of PAMA. I love being able to contribute to this organization. Um, but I think, you know, everybody went into medicine to take care of people. Mm -hmm. And right. um, to me, that's the highlight when I can make somebody, help somebody, you know, to have a better life, a better quality of life. Um, and find their voice, literally. And, find their, and literally find their voice. <laughs> um, it is it is so thrilling. It mm -hmm. is so thrilling. So I'm, I'm always grateful to my patients for them trusting me to help them on that journey. Well, we appreciate you being with us, Dr. Halstead. It's been wonderful and having you share your journey with us. Uh, we appreciate all the information and research, and we hope to have more folks come to the PAMA conference next month. Well, I hope so too. Thanks I'm so much. We're going to be including all the resources and, and names that you listed and websites um, in our show notes. So uh, everyone that's listening in, please look out for those because there are a lot of great resources out there. And I think it would be wonderful for everyone to get involved with the Performing Arts Medical Association if they can, because of all these yes. resources that can help them grow in their, their own field within the arts. Well, thank you. I, I'm so proud of the organization and all the hard work that all of our members are doing. They're, they're just on fire. They're wonderful. Well, you should be very proud. Thank you again, Dr. Halstead, for your time and experience today. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thanks to you, Yasi. Another great episode as always. Yes, thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode. For everyone listening, we thank you so much for listening in. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast and you'll get our newest episodes sent out to you automatically. For Yassi Ansari, this is Stephen Karajinas, and you've been listening to the Athletes in the Arts podcast. Mm -hmm.